North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's good, and I'm glad you're here today. Like I said, I hope you're doing good. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're actually going to jump right in. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I know some of you are turning there, but we're going to start reading anyways. Verse 1, you can follow along on the screen. It says this, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazanon Tamar, which is in Gadi. Verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're in a series that we're calling Do Hard Things. We started it last week about staying ready, and we're, we're calling it Do Hard Things. And so we talked a little bit last week, if you remember, that there's going to be a few of us as Christians, as believers, and if you're not a believer, you, haven't, you, you wouldn't say that, that you have that kind of faith in Jesus. Man, we are so, so glad you're here today. We, we love, love, love that you're here. And, our, and it's our prayer, we're just going to be honest with you, it's our prayer that you would join the family of God. That's why we are here. We believe that that's our mission on earth, is to present a gospel in a way that, that you who don't have a relationship with Jesus would want a relationship with Jesus and, and that they could change your life. And, and so we, we said last week that um, some of us as believers will be called to do difficult things. And what we mean by difficult things is, is it will require a specific skill set, a, a specific talent. Um, um, <clears throat> some are, are called by God to do the difficult thing of translating scripture into other languages. And, and there's only a few people that can do that. It's very, very difficult. But the reality is as believers, all of us are going to be called upon to do hard things. And there's a difference between difficult and hard. Difficult requires a specific skill set. Hard things are just those things that press against what we naturally want to do. They're not always, they're not always complex, but they're always hard. And I'm going to talk to you about a hard thing this morning. The hard thing that I'm going to talk to you about is, is fasting. <clears throat> it's fasting. Some of you have been a part of our church for a while. You, you know that at the beginning of every year, usually we do it in January. It got bumped back a little bit this year. Um, we, we do a fast. We, we take a week and, and we um, engage in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Now, just for context, if you've been here and you've been a part of our fast, let me see your hands. You, you kind of know, know what we're talking about here. Others of you haven't. Maybe you're new to North Shore or you just missed those weeks when we talked about fasting. Um, I, I want to just give you a little bit of explanation just to make sure that we're all on the same page. And so all scripture talks about fasting, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, it talks about fasting often. And, and every mention of fasting in scripture is in reference to food. And, and so I think that's important that we understand early on in this message today that, that when we talk about fasting, we're talking about food. And, and I say that because... Um, I've seen that for far too long, we've sort of watered down what it means to fast. We've, we've done everything we can to make it really simple and, and really easy, and we, we step away from the hard parts of Scripture and the hard parts of what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And, and because of that, it seems like fasting has turned away from connecting with God in an intimate way to 
an attempt to break bad habits. You know what I'm talking about? And so we want to make sure that, that we call it what it is. And I, and I think for too long, uh, well-meaning ministries and, and pastors and ministers, and, and me included, um, with, with good intentions and, and kind hearts are asking people to just find something to give up for a little bit and not actually asking people to fast. And we're changing the def definition from what it is to something so simple, it's silly, even though the Holy Spirit and Scripture time and time and time again ask us to do hard things. And so again, like I said, Scripture in every mention of fasting is in reference to food. In essence, what it is, it's giving up what sustains for who sustains. Let me say that again. Fasting is giving up what sustains us for who sustains us. It's, it's taking a set period of time, a day, a couple days, a week, and, and giving up a, a portion of food. Some people will, will fast, do a partial fast, which is like uh, breakfast, lunch, and then eat dinner. Or some people have to change their fast because of medical reasons. And some people are saying, you know what? I'm going to fast everything. And let me just say practically, when you do fast, um, drink lots of water. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of water. It helps with the hunger pains and it flushes out toxins and, and all sorts of things. But, but drink lots of water. So when we talk about fasting, please, please don't hear me say no water, no food, nothing. Because, you know, you'll die. Okay? And I don't want anybody to die. Right? Um, and, so, and so what fasting is, it's giving up what sustains our bellies for a period of time to focus on who sustains us. And so at the end of this message, I'm going to challenge you to fast. And know that when I talk about fasting, we're talking about food, and I'm going to ask you to do it for three days, and it doesn't have to be back to back to back, but sometime this week, over the next week, I'm going to ask you to fast for three days so that we can connect to God, drinking lots and lots and lots of water. And so I'm trying to be clear in this before we get into the, the rest of the message that we're not talking about giving up something for Lent, okay? We're talking about fasting. So I'm not, I'm not asking you to fast sugar or chocolate or, or TV or, or social media or cigarettes or pornography. You know, I'm not asking you to fast that because that's, that's just bad habits and sin. Um, what I'm asking you to fast is, is food. It's biblical. See, oftentimes we call those fasts so that we can get out of doing the hard things. And, and that's kind of like putting a pillow or putting a Bible under your pillow while you sleep at night and pretending you had meditated on God's word. Come on, right? You know? I've had people come to me all the time, oh, pastor, I'm going through a hard time. Okay, so what are you doing? How are you connecting with God? Well, I got a brand new Bible, and I put it under my pillow. Did you open it? Well, no, I don't have time to open it, but I'm sleeping on it, man. Good for you. Great things are coming. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, uh, we're not going to call silly things spiritual. Let's just call it what it is, okay? And so when we're calling it a fast, know what we're talking about. And let me give you a little warning. If you've never fasted before, some of you who have, and you know what we're talking about, if you haven't, let me give you just a little warning. Fasting is hard. Amen. Thank you. I didn't have any amens in the first service. Got one here. Fasting is hard. If you've never fasted before and you're going to try to do a full fast, or you're going to go a day with just drinking water, connecting to the Lord, and you're not going to eat, even if you've never eaten breakfast, you never eat breakfast before in your life, the day you decide to fast, you're going to wake up in the morning and be like, you know what? Some pancakes sound really good right now. So let me just tell you, fasting is hard, but it's giving up what sustains for a time to focus on who sustains. 
So I want to do a couple things this morning. I want to give you uh, several examples of fasting in Scripture to solidify our understanding that it is for us, that we as believers ought to be fasting. And then we're going to focus in on 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and look at a very specific situation because I believe that the Holy Spirit has, has laid on my heart to direct us to a specific intent in our fast this week. And it's different than what we've ever done before. So let me give you a little bit of a flyover view of the scripture, and I'll do this quick. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses fasted for 40 days before he was given the Ten Commandments, and he had the opportunity to see God in his glory. First Kings chapter 19, Elijah fasted, and God restored his courage and his calling into ministry. Uh, Ezra 10, Ezra fasted when he heard of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. It, it broke his heart, and he went to fasting on behalf of Israel for their, for their return to God, for repentance of sin. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah fasted when he heard the, of the, the physical condition of Israel and the broken down walls surrounding Israel, and it sort of represented their spiritual condition as well. And as in Esther uh, chapter 4, um, it was uh, discovered that there was a plot. Uh, a wicked man named Haman was set out to kill all the Jews on a certain day. It was almost like, you know, those, those terrible movies, Purge, that have been out lately. Like on one day, they, it was legal for them to murder and steal from all the Jews. And Esther found out about that, and, and um, she fasted before she went to the king, and the plot was discovered, and, and the Jews were saved. And so she spent some time fasting. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel receives a vision that he couldn't understand the meaning of it, which was a little bit uh, different for Daniel. He typically understood the meaning quickly, but, but he didn't, and so he fasted for 21 days until he uh, understood the answer, or the, the, understood what the vision meant, and so he was fasting. It's not just the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days before he entered into his time on earth ministering, okay? And so I, I know a lot of times people will say, well, I, you know, I don't think I need to fast. You know, I, I'm connected to the Lord. I got the Holy Spirit, and, and you know, I read my Bible. Bible and stuff, so I don't think fasting is necessary for me. Listen, if Jesus Christ fasted, there's none of you that can say, I don't need to, amen? And if Jesus did it, then it's probably for us today. Acts chapter 9, Paul fasted after he was radically saved. Acts 13, the church elders in Antioch fasted before they sent out missionaries to forcefully advance the kingdom. In Luke chapter 2, there's this obscure passage about an old prophetess named Anna who, Scripture says, she spent all of her time in the temple praying and fasting. It was a lifestyle of fasting. And it appears that she was fasting for, for the opportunity to be able to see the Messiah and she actually saw Jesus dedicated at the temple and then she begins to speak of redemption and the Redeemer. And it's a result of her, her spiritual eyes being opened through years and years and years of fasting. Matthew chapter 9 we get this story of John the Baptist's disciples. They're frustrated, and they go up to Jesus, and they're angry, and they say, hey, Jesus, we got a problem, and, and our problem is this. We, as John's disciples, fast, and the Pharisees, they're fasting too, and there's just a little warning. Anytime you come to Jesus, if you partner with the Pharisees, it's probably going to be a bad day for you, right? If you know anything about Scripture, you don't say, hey, us and the Pharisees are doing this, and just don't say, I'm doing this. Forget about the Pharisees. Anyway, um, so, so John's disciples come to Jesus, and he says, hey, we're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting, um, and I have a little bit of a problem here, and I don't mean to, to think that you know, we're way more spiritual than your disciples, but honestly, Jesus, um, I don't ever see your disciples fasting. And Jesus says, well, listen, guys, here's the deal. Um, I'm here. 
Uh, they don't need to be fasting right now while I'm here because literally they are connecting to God in a way that they would have no other ability to connect with him because I am here. But make no mistake that when I leave, they're going to go back to fasting. And so we say all of this stuff to, to just sort of reemphasize this fact that this often neglected spiritual discipline of fasting is for us today. In fact, in, in the Gospels, Jesus makes three when you statements. Not if you, not maybe you should, or it's a good idea to. He says when you. He says when you give, give like this. When you pray, pray like this. And when you fast, fast like this. Which is an indication that he's not telling us that maybe we ought to. He's saying like there is a full expectation that you will give, pray, and fast. That's good preaching. I should have gotten an amen there, but I'm just going to keep going anyway. And so um, that, that's, that's all well and good. And so fasting is mentioned in Old Testament and Gospels in the early church. And it's always, again, always, listen, in reference to food. Trading what sustains for who sustains. Now, that was just kind of the overview. A lot of references that you can go back and look at later. But I want to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and look at Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and remember, the scripture that we read at the very beginning of the services, he was surrounded by an enemy army, no ability to defeat them, no ability of, uh, uh, of fighting back, no chance at survival, and scripture said he was afraid, and he called a fast, he called all of Judah to fast, and before we get into that piece of the story, I want to give you a little bit of history um, so that we consider the circumstances and situations surrounding this fast that he declared there in Judah. And I'm afraid that this message might feel a little disjointed, but I think we have to go back and set some groundwork because I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to do something very specific and very intentional in our lives and in our church today. I think that, I think that as we continue to pray for more of God, he is showing us steps so that we can position ourselves to receive more from God. And so, and so we're going to do this today. So, so let me give you some background and some history. The nation of Israel was originally divided into 12 tribes. If you, if you know anything about Old Testament scripture and history, it was originally divided into 12 tribes. Sort of like states that made up a nation. So 12 tribes, 12 states that made up the nation of Israel. So at some point in the history of Israel, which we don't have time to go into today, there was, there was a, like a civil war and the nation was divided. Okay, so we have 10 tribes that, that formed the nation of Israel and two tribes that formed the nation of Judah. Now, it's important to remember that, that the original 12 tribes were called out, set apart by God, and God had a special hand on these 12 tribes, a special hand on the Hebrew people and the nation of Israel. Now, when they split in their civil war, God did not remove his hand. I mean, he still loves his people. These are still his people. And so God still has a vested interest in the 10 tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. And the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is the history of these two nations and their rulers and their kings. And, and it just kind of uh, tells the history of uh, you know, ancient Israel. In that, there are some kings who are good and godly. They're making good decisions. They're following God. And, and there are some kings in both Israel and Judah who are, are wicked and evil and pagan and, and turn the nation away from God and are full of compromise. And so in this particular time in history that we're looking at today, leading up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, um, we have two kings, 
We have King Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, and we have King Ahab, who is the king of the ten tribes in Israel. And so let's talk about Jehoshaphat first. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was a godly king. Scripture says that the Lord was with him because he walked in the ways of his father, David, who his father, or David, was an ancestor who followed God. Um, Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart. And, And Jehoshaphat was walking that same path, honoring God, loving God, worshiping God. He didn't worship Baal or any false gods or demon gods or anything like that 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 the, the nation of Israel had begun to do. He was staying committed to God. And Scripture tells us that as a result of that commitment and that style of leadership, the Lord firmly established the kingdom of Judah in his hand. And so in this time, the nation of Judah, they they were really returning back to faithfulness and faith in God. Um, Jehoshaphat had established uh, priests or pastors to go around the nation, and they were going into cities, and they were teaching the the law of God or or the Bible to these people. And and there really was a spiritual resurgence that, that was beginning to impact surrounding kingdoms around them. So things were going really, really well um, as far as their relationship with God there in Judah. Now, across the border is the nation of Israel being led by King Ahab. King Ahab was almost the complete opposite of Jehoshaphat over here. Ahab was very powerful, one of the most powerful kings of Israel, but but many consider him to be the absolute worst king in Israel. He was the very first king in Israel to enter into a pagan marriage when he married wicked Queen Jezebel. And, um, and Queen Jezebel made it her life's work. She made it her mission to not only establish in Israel the worship of Baal, which is a demonic god, but also to eradicate all signs of worship of Jehovah God, which was the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, and the God of Israel. And so Jezebel didn't want to just put uh, another temple or another altar to Baal. She wanted to tear down, burn, completely destroy all signs of Jehovah God, the God of Israel. So she had this systematic plan to destroy all worship of Jehovah God in the nation of Israel. So Ahab is building altars to Baal. They're um, eliminating prophets of God, real true prophets of God, and, um, and, and tearing down altars to God. And in that, Ahab, scripture tells us, was so wicked that God spoke to Elijah, the prophet, to prophesy that Ahab and his family would be completely and totally eliminated, that there would be no line, there would be no legacy, there would be no future kings coming in his line, that he and and his whole future family line would be completely gone. In fact, there, there is a follow-up to that, that it was prophesied about Queen Jezebel that when she died, wild dogs would eat her body. So, so she would be, her memory, her remains, everything about her would be completely eliminated off the face of the earth, that wild dogs would eat her. So it's a pretty severe um, judgment, a prophecy of judgment. And so we reach this place in history where God is, is beginning to to step into the season where he's going to carry out this judgment against Ahab, the wicked king. And, and for some reason, and it's just, I, I don't know why godly men and godly women allow themselves 
to do this. But for some reason in this season, you got wicked King Ahab, you got godly King Jehoshaphat over here. For some reason in this season, Jehoshaphat, the godly king, enters into an alliance with Ahab. There's a partnership. And he enters into this alliance by allowing his son to marry wicked Ahab's daughter. Then a few years later, Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab. And Ahab had a plan. Jehoshaphat comes to the nation of Israel. He visits Ahab. And Ahab, man, he lays out the royal treatment. It wasn't just that uh, the king of Judah was coming. I mean, he went all out. I mean, the table was full of just anything that your belly or your heart could imagine. There's, there, there's partying and, 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 and drinking and just all sorts, of, all sorts of good things happening. And man, he laid out the red carpet, gave him the royal treatment, just had this big party. And, and Jehoshaphat's coming in and he's feeling pretty good, right? It, it, you know, I can't help but think that him being the king of two tribes may have felt like the, the little brother, like, right? The cousin. And he comes in and he's being treated like he's a big deal. And um, then, you know, at some point during the dinner, King Ahab leans over to King Jehoshaphat and says, hey, I got a question for you. I'm thinking about going and attacking Ramoth Gilead. And I was wondering if maybe you would come and join me me, if you would bring your army and you would help me, maybe, you know, we, we have a little bit of a friendship and a little bit of an alliance, but let's form a, a military alliance and go take out um, Ramoth Gilead. Now, I want to tell you something. There is an evil enemy of your soul, and he is not stupid, Okay? He's going to do everything he can to lay out the spread, to make it enticing, to make partnership with him look and feel good. And then as soon as your defenses are down, he's going to say, you know what, I got a question for you. And he's going to lead you into compromise. He's going to lead you into places of sin. He's going to direct you away from the will of God in your life. But he's not going to do it coming in with bad intentions. He's going to do it after he butters you up a little bit. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. The enemy's not stupid, okay? We've got to stop pretending that he is. And so, so he butters him up, and then he says, Jehoshaphat, i got a question for you. Would you come and attack Ramoth Gilead with me? And Jehoshaphat says, of course I'll fight with you. We're brothers, we're family, we're close, we are one. Of course I'll go fight with you. And then he says, wait, 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 but first let's, let's ask God. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go fight with you, obviously. I mean, you know, we're like family. But, but let's see what God has to say about it just before we do this. And so King Ahab summons 400 of his prophets. And I think it's important that we establish they are his prophets. They are not true prophets of God. He brings in 400 of his prophets. And, and he says to them there, you know, in, in the party, he says, hey, should we go attack Ramoth Gilead? Second Chronicles, verse 18, verse 5 says, they all replied, yes, go right ahead. God will give the king the victory. King, you are the man you are so tough, you are bad to the bone, I would never fight you. You go, you fight, God will give you any victory that you go and fight. King Jehoshaphat is watching this, he's thinking, oh, this is pretty cool. And then he asks him, are there any other prophets? Is, is, there any, is there anybody else? I mean, is this all of them? He's essentially saying, Ahab, is there any prophets that speak for God that are not on your payroll that we could ask and see what he says too? Verse 7, the king of Israel, Ahab, replied to Jehoshaphat, There is one more man who could consult the Lord for us, but I hate him. I don't like him. I'm not a fan of him. 
You know, he's essentially saying, you know what, I, I regret that he's even still breathing because, I mean, he's opposed me all the time. He says, he never prophesied anything but trouble for me. His name is Micaiah, son of Imlah. King Jehoshaphat says, well, let's, let's bring him in, you know, just, just to be safe. I, I know we got 400 here, but let's just hear what he has to say. Let's bring him in. And so here's the picture. You've got you to put this in your mind. You got King Ahab sitting here on his throne, dressed in his royal garb. You got King Jehoshaphat, the leader of the two tribes of Judah. He's in his throne, in his royal garb. And you got 400 prophets in this great hall that are just chanting great things about Ahab. Ahab is the man. Ahab is great. Give me an A, A, give me an H, you know, all that stuff. You know, they're just, they're just singing his praises and they're glorified cheerleaders. They're loving on him. And then in walks Micaiah, okay? So Ahab tells one of his servants, go get Micaiah, bring him in. And there they are. They're kind of talking back and forth. They're still enjoying, you know, the turkey leg, you know, eating and all that. And then Micaiah walks in. All the prophets of Baal are singing Ahab's praises. You're the man. You're the man. Micaiah walks in with the messenger. And as they're walking into this great hall, coming down to approach the king, the messenger leans over to Micaiah, whispers to him as they're walking down and says, hey, listen here. You see those 400 prophets? They're all telling the king he's the man and he's guaranteed victory. You see King Jehoshaphat up there? He's already agreed to go fight with King Ahab. All he needs is for you to say, yes, go fight. It'd be a good idea, Micaiah, if you just go ahead and you repeat everything else that is being said. If you know what's good for you, you're going to give the king a positive report. And so the messenger leads Micaiah down there. He's standing in front of the two kings. All the cheerleaders are there. Ahab, Ahab. And, uh, and Ahab says, Micaiah, should I go to war with Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah, this man of God, did exactly what the messenger told him to do. He gave him a good report. Except it was dripping in sarcasm. And that's what scripture says. And, and sometimes we think scripture is boring. But if you picture this, it's so good. 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 14, Micaiah replied sarcastically, yes, go up, be victorious. You got this, king, you're so good, awesome. Look at all these people, they're telling you how awesome you are, for you will surely have victory over all of them. Yes, go. And, and, and the sarcasm was just obvious, and it made Ahab furious that he would have the audacity to speak to him like this. And then Ahab demanded that Micaiah speak the truth. Don't you dare patronize me. Don't you dare treat me this way. You come in here, you speak for the Lord, you speak the truth. Now what is it? And then Micaiah, you can kind of hear his, his tone change and the sarcasm completely leave. And he says, King, in a vision I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. And, and as the, the, the hush in the great hall and both kings leaning forward and listening and all 400 prophets uh, of, of Ahad's prophets are, are, are listening into what Micaiah is having to say, they hear this prophet tell their king that if he goes and fights, he's going to be killed. Yeah, go fight. They will no longer have a king. They will be sheep without a shepherd. They will have no leader. You go to Ramoth Gilead and you will die. 
There's a hush that falls and nobody really knows what to do. And then, and then they begin to start arguing. And then one of the, the prophets of, of Ahab, he, he rushes forward and he approaches Micaiah and he punches him right in the face. He says, how dare you talk to my king that way? When did the spirit of God leave me and enter you? And the reality is the spirit of God was probably never in him because his whole agenda was to please a king rather than the king of kings. And so he says, how dare you do that? He punched him in the face. And then Ahab says, arrest that man, arrest Micaiah, not the guy who punched him in the face. He was happy about the guy who punched him in the face. He said, arrest Micaiah, take him, throw him into jail, keep him there, give him barely enough bread and water to keep him alive, and I'll deal with him when I get back. As they were dragging Micaiah out of the throne room, um, Micaiah hollers to the king. He says, if you come back, then God hasn't spoken to me. Mark my words. And I think it's so interesting. I think it's so strange how, how some people want the truth even when they have no intention to listen to it or follow it. And we have to be careful. We, we have to understand that we live in a world that isn't opposed to the truth. They want the truth, and there's this searching for the truth, and though it gets manipulated and changed so that, so that my truth becomes the most important truth, which my truth is stupid, um, and, and it's just, it's just kind of all over the place. But the reality is they're not opposed to truth. They just have no interest in following the truth. And so we have to be careful. We have to be a people that will listen, have ears to listen to the truth, and then follow the truth even when it's unpopular. Even when it goes against our agenda or our desires or, or what is culturally acceptable, we have to be a people that are desperate for the truth and are willing to behave as if the truth was really true. And that's what we seldom do. We seldom behave as if the truth is really true. And so something strange happens. After that big scene and, and Jehoshaphat, and I can just picture him like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. Look at all this stuff that's happened, right? Um, after that, he has to make a decision. And we get that decision in 2 Chronicles verse 18, chapter 28. And, and you may be thinking, well, he's obviously you know, going to decide not to go. So look at what scripture says. So King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth Gilead. After what happened with Micaiah, Jehoshaphat is like, well, let's go get them. Ramoth Gilead is ours. They're going down, right? And they partnered together to go attack Ramoth Gilead. Now, I, I say all of this stuff, and I try to, to paint this picture and tell this story, not just to give you a history lesson and say, hey, cool story, right? But to let you see deeper into this. Think about this. Jehoshaphat made an alliance with a godless king. He allowed himself to be enticed by gifts and, and food and earthly pleasures. He, he allowed himself to be buttered up and he allowed his ego to be stroked in a way that would change his decisions and change his course of action. He allowed the volume of an unrighteous mob to drown out the true word of the Lord spoken by Micaiah. And he entered into a battle he had no business fighting and it almost cost him his life. 
Even Ahab was Weasley in his battle plan. He said, hey, look, Jehoshaphat, this is what we're going to do. You're going to dress up like a king. I'm just going to dress up like one of the warriors. Well, it turns out that the enemy's battle strategy was to only focus on the king. So they weren't worrying about killing anybody else. They were just going after the kings. And Jehoshaphat's like, hey, look, I'm Jehoshaphat, not Ahab. Then they turned. They couldn't find Ahab. They were frustrated. The battle was almost over. And then scripture says an archer just flung a random arrow, wasn't really shooting at anybody in particular, just shot an arrow. It flew and it killed Ahab because God declared that that would happen in the war. When they found out that Ahab was dead, the battle was over, everybody went home. So Ahab died in the battle, just as the prophet said, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 1. Jehoshaphat barely makes it out alive. He goes home. When King Jehoshaphat of Judah arrived safely home in Jerusalem, Jehu, who was a true prophet of the Lord, son of Hanai, the seer, went out to meet him. Why should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, he asked the king. Because of what you have done, the Lord is very angry with you. The ESV version says it this way. Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. And so a lot of this stuff, I know this is way different than most of the messages that we preach, but I hope you're still with me. Because there's more than just a history lesson here. So after this, Jehoshaphat makes these bad decisions. He, he, he gets this um, warning from this prophet that says, the wrath has gone out against you. God's not happy with you. We fast forward to chapter 20, which is where we open the message today. There's a vast army surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding Judah. He's terrified. He knows he has no ability to defeat this enemy. He knows that this is going to be their destruction. He knows that he's in a season of his leadership, that God is angry with him. But even with that knowledge, he sees the situation and he begs God. He begs God to be a savior. He begs God to be a redeemer. He begs God to be a restorer. He begs God for salvation, and he declares a fast throughout all of Judah. And I want to say that there are some of you in this place, you you think, you know, because of the decisions you've been making, some of the behaviors you've been participating in, some of the the actions, the things you've been looking at online or whatever, um, you think, man, I am in no position to fast. God is angry with me. I'm in no position. Look, if you feel in your heart that you are participating in behavior that God is angry with, that is the perfect time to fast. That is the perfect time to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm all yours. Lord, I'm looking to you to be my savior, my restorer, my, my champion. That's the perfect time, and that's exactly what Jehoshaphat does. And in this, I believe, this fast that he calls, there's an implication that we can't overlook. You see, We spent all of this time setting the story, setting this backstory, because I believe that in this moment, the Holy Spirit is trying to say something to this church, that in that Jehoshaphat was not just fasting for salvation, fasting for victory, but he was fasting for sin. He was fasting for sin. And when we as a people began to fast for sin, there is this sort of implication that we are going to fast from it as well. Think about this. It was King Jehoshaphat's sin to align with Ahab. It was his sin to attack Ramoth Gilead against the word of the Lord. It was his sin that resulted in a defeat that exposed his weaknesses to other enemies that came and attacked later. It was his sin to be enticed by gifts rather than listen to the word of God. It was his sin to follow these earthly pleasures and to allow somebody to to butter him up and, and to make him feel good rather than Stay straight on the way of the Lord. And now it is this sin that resulted in him staring at an enemy that he has no ability to overcome. And it's going to result in the destruction of everything and everyone he loves. 
And I think it's important that we know this. That sin is the green light for the enemy to attack in your life. I know this feels a little bit old school and I don't have a suit or a hanky that I'm shaking around, right? But we gotta be careful. When we start engaging with sin, when we start flirting with sin, when we start participating in sin, that is the green light for the enemy to wage war against you. Now he has discovered, he's found out your weaknesses and he is going to attack. If you engage in sin, the enemy is going to attack your finances, I promise you. You engage in sin, the enemy is going to start attacking your marriages, I promise you. You engage in sin, the enemy is going to begin to attack your health, your family, your kids. It will expose vulnerabilities in your spiritual life, in your physical life, in your financial life, in your relational life, and the enemy is going to say, let's go get him. Let's go get her. It's a green light for the enemy to surround you and advance. And there was absolutely nothing that Jehoshaphat could do about it, so he called a fast. I want you to see the seriousness of this. Verse 13, as all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there, and we don't have time to go into this story, but this man declares the word of the Lord, and, and, and he gives them a plan on how to fight, and we're actually going to follow this up with just a very short teaching on Wednesday night about victory formation. The victory formation, even before the battle begins, there's a victory formation, and God does an awesome, awesome work. But, but he calls everybody to fast. He calls the entire nation to fast. The sin was so serious, the consequences of this sin were so de devastating that he doesn't just ask the men to fast, he asks the men, the women, the young and the old, the children and the infants to fast. Now, I want you to hear this. Imagine the intensity of that scene. Think about this. You have a preschooler, right? When they get hungry, they let you know, don't they? And if you don't get them what they want, they're going to get cranky and crabby, and you're going to do everything you can. Oh, honey, we're going to get you something a little bit. Just wait a little bit more. You know, we're going to get you something here. Here, put this sucker in your mouth and shut up. I just can't hear you anymore, right? But, but you think about what that would have looked like with infants, with little ones, little babies that are nursing. What happens when they don't eat? They start crying. And it gets louder and intense. And there's no amount of shaking or bouncing or, don't shake a baby, never shake a baby. But you know what I mean, you know, bouncing or patting and all that stuff that you can do to calm that child down until you get them some food. And so imagine a nation coming together, uh, surrounded by the enemy, in fasting and prayer. They're going and they're crying out to God to be the Savior. But amongst their cries, you have the cries of the babies and the cries of the infants and the cries of the children because they're hungry, because their king has declared a fast. And, and I read this and I think, man, that king is a jerk. You can't ask kids to fast. You can't ask little kids to fast. And by the way, just so we're clear, I am not asking your kids to fast. I need to be clear. I'm not asking your infants to fast. So don't be like, well, I can't feed them because Pastor Chris said I am not saying that. Don't hear it. But I'm listening to this. I'm reading this. And I'm thinking, man, that king is kind of a jerk. He can't ask those kids to fast. What is he thinking? That's cruel. You can't do that. But the reality is, the sin that was going to bring devastation was so much greater than the hunger pains that they were feeling in that moment. And it was like the Holy Spirit was painting a picture saying, look, the effects and the results of the sin that you have brought on this nation 
are going to affect far more than just you. Every single person is going to be hurt by this sin. They're going to feel a pain that you never thought that they would ever want to feel. So be careful. And so in desperation, Jehoshaphat says, we must run to the Lord. We must seek God's face. Our eyes are on you. We're looking to you. We're declaring a fast. We're repenting. We're pleading. God, please do something. Save us. Restore us. Redeem us. Do something. And sure, it was hard. But when you begin to do hard things, God begins to do the impossible things. And so they fasted, they prayed, they repented, they pleaded. And though sin may have tasted sweet for a while, though he may have felt special for a little bit, though it may have fed something in his hungry and sinful soul, there was a declaration that they would no longer be swayed by, by, the, by the pleasures of sin, but they would follow the will of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat co- closes his public prayer like this in verse 12. He says, oh, our God, won't you stop them? Talking about the enemy. He says, we are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. And there's some of you that are here today, and there's a situation that you're in right now. And, and for some of you, you created the situation. You made the bad decisions. You made the dumb choices. You got yourself in this, and now you're surrounded by an enemy. You're surrounded by consequences. You don't know what to do. And the only thing you can do here this morning is look to God and say, God, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do, but I'm looking to you for help. And I'm not here to say, man, I hate it when people run from God. And then when they get in trouble, they run back to God. I'm saying this morning, if you're in trouble, run back to God. Run back to God. He's, he's ready for you. Run, come back to him. If you have made dumb decision after dumb decision after dumb decision, and there are consequences surrounding, God is telling you today, well, come back then. Come back. Sometimes God will allow those bad things to happen in your life, so you will come back. As we prepare to close today, it's important that we understand this is more than just a history lesson. I believe the Holy Spirit wants something for our church today, something clear and specific. Stand your feet all across this room as I make this last final point. Remember what I said a moment ago. Jehoshaphat made an alliance with a godless king. He allowed himself to be enticed by gifts and earthly pleasures. And the volume of an unrighteous majority caused him to miss the authentic word of the Lord. Some of you are in this place today and you have made an alliance with a godless king. And it's resulted in anger in you and hate and lust and compromised integrity and pornography and greed and addiction and indifference and apathy and all sorts of things that you weren't pursuing but has come as a result of it. You've been enticed by the ego boost, the high, the, the, the release, the escape. You felt special. You felt powerful. You felt strong. You felt like somebody for a moment or a season and it was feeding that, that, that sinful hunger inside of you. Hebrews 11 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin and it was engaging and it was enticing and it was fulfilling for a moment but it will always end up with you surrounded by an enemy that his only purpose is to completely destroy you perhaps you're here today and the sheer volume of the unrighteous majority has, has caused you to question what you know is true and what you know is right 
I think it's time for us in this place to say we are going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We are going to focus on Jesus. We're going to call out to him for help. And we are going to, as a church family, with desperation, say, God, we still need you. We still need you. I know it's hard. But when you begin to do hard things, God starts to do impossible things. So here's my challenge for you today. Um, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to do something hard this week, to fast. But I believe that the Holy Spirit is leading me to ask you to fast for something very specific. I believe that the direction that we're supposed to go this week is to fast for sin. And we fasted for finances, and we fasted for miracles, and we fasted for salvations. But I believe that the Holy Spirit this, this week is saying, fast for sin. There's some of us in this place that, man, we have, we have sin in our life. And it is tearing us up. And it may be a sin that's there that your spouse doesn't even know about. You don't, nobody else knows about, but it is destroying you on the inside. It's time to fast for it, to begin to fast from it. And say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to be a people that will, will fast and spend specific time this week in repentance. Personal sins you struggle with. And, and my prayer for you, honestly, is that this week you would get a glimpse of, get a glimpse of, of the pain that this sin, if you continue to pursue, will cause you your family, and your legacy. Because if, if we were just to get a glimpse of it, we would run from it. The problem is the enemy often shields us from the, the, the bridge that, that is out in the future. And he's just going to tell us to keep running down that road, keep running down that road. Eventually we're going to crash. And he removes all warning signs. And I pray that we would get a glimpse of what may happen if we continue down that road. Would you spend some time fasting and praying this week, repenting on behalf of your personal sins, the sins of the family? And think about our nation, man. We spend so much time complaining about our country, our culture, the kids, the different generations. We spend so much time complaining about it. How about this week, instead of complaining about it, we pray about it and we spend some time repenting for them on their behalf. <laughs> spend some time this week Asking God to forgive the sins of the nation, forgive our sins of hatred, forgive our sins of murder, forgive our sins of racism, forgive our sins of division, Lord. What if, what if as a church, as a people of God, we would just begin to in unison pray and fast and repent and saying, God, we're not looking to government. We're not looking to programs. We're looking to you. We're looking to you. So I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask, will you commit three days this week to fast and pray? Three days. And they don't have to be back to back to back. Maybe it's Sunday, Wednesday, Friday. Maybe it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Maybe it's Tuesday, Friday, whatever. Drink lots and lots and lots of water. But would you commit to find three days where you are going to take time? You're going to set time aside and you are going to get alone with God. And you are going to fast and repent. Say, God, my eyes are on you. We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.